The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it is a truth not always universally acknowledged. When girls are educated along with the boys, women end up reading as much or more than men. And yet, throughout history, men have dominated publishing and prize-winning and even authorship itself. It seems absurd now, but during different periods of history, women were told that writing, the simple act of writing fiction or poetry, was not appropriate for them. The world lost half its literature. There's no single culprit in different times and in different societies. There are numerous culprits. There are giant structural factors. Perhaps it's an era where girls are not educated, either they're not taught to read or they have no access to school, or it's harder to obtain advanced education. Or maybe it's an era where publishers will only print men, leading women to go under disguised names or to use initials or to be rejected outright if the men suspect the ruse. Or maybe the bias is at the family level. A father who denies his daughter the time and space needed to write her stories or poems, or a mother who does the same. This is not a proper pursuit for a lady. Or the would-be writer herself, taking herself out of the running, trying to please. Maybe it's the prize committees showing their prejudice, choosing man after man after man. Maybe it's the reviewers. Maybe it's the reading public. And so, for a million different reasons, we wind up with a literature that's less than it should be. We end up with stories that aren't heard, perspectives that aren't aired, individual talents that are stifled. People with something to say, news to bring us, insights to light up our world, and we do not get it. In the moment, or as posterity, looking back. We end up like a cartoon character racing out to the end of a tree branch for safety. No one shall follow me out here. I'll saw off the limb to make sure I'm alone. When we do that, the tree doesn't crash to the ground. We do. That sounds like a downer, and it is, but we have a way to make it optimistic here on the History of Literature. We have an author today who has found some bright squares in this dark and gray quilt. Anna Beer is her name, and her new book, Eve Bites Back, An Alternative History of English Literature, investigates the lives and achievements of eight women writers, warned not to write, but who did it anyway. Starting in the 14th century, Anna has found these examples. Who were these intrepid people who bucked the odds? What were those odds exactly? What or who was keeping them down, and what inspired them to keep going? Was it divine inspiration? Was it an unquenchable passion for stories and verse? Who dared to write? And what happened to them when they did? Anna Beer, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the humble little podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, finally wrapping up my October. It's November 14th for all of you and October 45th, 2022 for your humble podcaster. I really pushed it this year to prolong my favorite month, October, and man, this has worked out better than I expected. A real cheat for me. I upped my October intake by 50%. 
And November has already indicated that it doesn't mind a bit. It's going to take me in and let me start on the 15th with everyone else just in time for Thanksgiving. It even suggested that it didn't mind me getting out of its hair for a while. It's a busy month. It appreciated having a little bit less to do, one less person to worry about. So on we go. Eve bites back with Anna Beer. This is a fun one. I'm tempted to just run the conversation. I think you get the idea. Women who were stifled at different periods in history, but women who wrote anyway. Damn the consequences. Maybe I'll tell you who's in the book so you get... You know what? You should go buy the book. Sometimes you hear these episodes and you think... I know you do this. You hear the episode and you think, okay, well, now I don't have to read it. I heard all the ideas in the conversation with Jack. Well, this is not that kind of book. This is a book where the episode... And the conversation in the episode is just to whet your appetite because the book itself is like an exquisite eight-course meal. You don't go to a restaurant and read the menu and think, oh, good, now I don't have to eat, right? (laughs) When the waiter comes around and and (laughs) explains the menu, says, let me tell you about today's special, it's fresh caught something or other underneath a nice such and such glaze with this and that on the side. You you don't think, okay, great. We've heard it. Now we don't have to eat. Goodbye. No, 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 no. This is one where the pleasure is in the reading. So when Anna and I talk about Julian of Norwich, the anchoress, you will want to go read the chapter on Julian of Norwich because there is much more to that than Anna and I will have time to discuss. We will get some of the area, era, area, era, We'll get some of the general context. We get the individual circumstances. We'll learn from that and apply it to our own day to the extent it applies and apply it to our understanding of history. We learn and take inspiration, but you should read the stories themselves. Anna's stories are very rich and very well told. Essential reading, Claire Tomlin says. I agree. Anna Beer, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, joining me now is Anna Beer, whose new book, Eve Bites Back, An Alternative History of English Literature, looks at the world of Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton and says, hey, what about the women who were writing then, too? There was an extra degree of difficulty for women writing then, as anyone who's read Virginia Woolf will know. In this book, Anna Beer brings us the dangerous liaisons and daring adventures of women authors like Marjorie Kemp, Afro Ben, and our old friend Amelia Lanier. Anna Beer, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much. And I understand you're coming to us from a film studio today, so we might hear some background noise, but it sounds like an exciting locale for a History of Literature interview. It is, it is. And after I've spoken with you, I will be speaking with some film people about different ways to bring these women's lives and works to life, I hope, through the, the form of television. I think I think television is, is cutting edge Ooh, still, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's become cutting edge once again. <laughs> well, it's a great opportunity to think about how to bring people's stories to life. Okay, well, let's talk about those stories. I'm interested in what drew you to this idea. You ended up with eight women. I'm wondering, did you start with one or two who were drawing your attention, or did you have an idea for the entire project first and then find some of the authors who would fit into it? It's a good question because going back quite a long way, I my academic background is in the literature of the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm, mm-hmm. And I'd always wanted to write a book about Amelia Lanya. And uh, yeah. And in fact, I went to my lovely agent and my publishers and I said, hey, this is such an amazing story. Yeah. And that was the germ for the book, because both of them said to me, why stop there? Mm. Why stop there? You've written a biography of Shakespeare. You've written a biography of Milton. You've written a group biography of female composers. Why not go large and make this a bigger project? And I, of course, thought, oh, no, no, you know, it's too big. It's too big. And. It has been scary. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who do I put in? How do I make this work? But once I got going, a kind of shape emerged. And yeah, I hope I've got the, the movement through the centuries working well. I need the reader to get, get a sense you're moving from the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th and onwards. And so there's a short but powerful cast list. And I decided after much thought to end in with an author who died in 1915 so in the first year of the the great war and i felt if i'd gone on past that not only would the book be about 800 pages long but perhaps there's a slightly different story to tell about the last hundred years right okay well that was something i'm very interested in and i can see where the project if you just focus on one woman author it can really get sort of localized into that author's period and and the particular obstacles. And it's easy to sort of say, well, okay, but we know that that's not how things were forever, or were they always like that, or just kind of causes yeah. you to, to question whether it was just kind of an idiosyncrasy of the time that women were treated that way. But what's exciting to me about your project is looking at it across those centuries, you can see patterns and you can see whether any particular era actually is individual or whether it's part of a common theme that lasted hundreds of years. So maybe the next best question for me is to ask what the obstacles that these eight women faced were. Well, as you've just said so correctly, that the patterns remain depressingly, you might say, the same. The obstacles are partly those of the mind or cultural, as it were. Mm. 
how to speak with authority as a woman. So not simply to have a voice, but to speak truth to power, to give views to all humanity. How can you get that authority? And every woman in the book had to find a way to do that. And that simply does not change over the 500 years. The practicalities do change, of course. Then again, the balancing act between the domestic personal responsibilities that women traditionally are asked to take up uh, or demanded to take up, depending how you look at it, or want to take up indeed, as many of these women did, balancing that with uh, their professional life or their writer's life is a great challenge. I'm not even talking about simply the the risk, say, of dying in childbirth or, Mm. you know, poverty and hunger or disease or war. I'm talking about simply running a house, (laughs) even if you've got money. So those run like a seam through the book. Those are the challenges to speak with authority. And what's fascinating is that the challenge is met in every generation in a different way. So you'll get the medieval women saying, this is God speaking directly through me. I am a vessel for godly truth. You'll have later women saying, I have authority because I'm, I'm a good woman. I'm a virtuous woman. And don't fear me. Don't fear my improper masculinity. You, you can trust me. And that, I think, is the other pattern, the challenge that all these women in different ways, some of them refused to be, but were, how should I put it, they had to be good. <laughs> they had yeah. to be good women. Right. And um, that, that's a huge pressure. Did you find that for much of this time, or maybe all of the time you looked at, the educational system was not including them at the same level as it was including men? Did you find that they all had some kind of access to education, a patron, or they were getting it through the church, or or they had a, an aunt or a, some kind of mentor who was opening up their library to them and basically encouraging them at a young age to learn? I think that is definitely the case with some of the later writers, Lady Mary Workley Montague, very privileged upbringing. Her father had many houses, all filled with libraries, and she had the free run of those books. So you could say she's self-educated, but self-education is a very, very special environment and taken very seriously as an intellectual young girl. Mm. Jane Austen as well, in a completely different way, is a bookish household. And Bradstreet in Massachusetts, a house in New England with... 800 books in it. So these women have access to books. Some of the women have access to books. What is interesting is that, yeah, you're absolutely right. Formal education, what we think of as education, is scarce, Mm -hmm. almost non-existent for any of these women. So it's about having access to spaces in which you can encounter books. And I'm saying encounter books because, again, one of the things I was trying to capture in in the book as a whole is that literacy takes many different forms the earliest writers we might not even think of in our modern sense as literate it's probable that marjorie kemp could not write she could not actually form letters on the page yeah all her book learning was listen she listened to books and one of the great things is of course there's a whole generation now who listen to books, <laughs> you yeah. know, who don't pick up an actual <laughs> physical book anymore, but they audiobooks are and podcasts are, are, are the way forward. So we're coming, we're coming full circle. So yeah, it, it's having spaces and places. And that would include church, hearing sermons, hearing people read to you, it would in- include the theatre, it would include somebody's front room. <laughs> yeah. And 
you'd be reading, they would be reading out loud the latest novel or the latest poem, and you'd be talking about it. Right. Speaking of spaces and places, let's start with Julian of Norwich. <laughs> Talk about a room of one's own. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> who was she? Well, that is a hugely problematic question. Mm. And I don't want to get too bogged down here thinking about how can we write a writer's life when we know nothing about the writer. Mm. It's, it is like an empty page. Uh, I write in my book that in some dictionary of literature, the entry for Sappho, the classical poet, is a blank page because the authors are saying, we project onto that blank page anything and everything we want to believe about Sappho. Yeah. And I think the same is true in some ways for Julian of Norwich. We know so little about the actual woman who lived. Right. All we have, really and truly, are her writings. And again and again in the book, I warn against reading from the text the life. You know, Afro Ben writes about sex work, so therefore she was a sex worker, or, you know, these very or, I don't know, clunky, banal ways we, we look at a literary text and map it onto the woman's life. But in Julian's case, I think simply knowing she was anchoress, yeah. that she was locked into this small space. And when I read her first task is to dig her own grave with her fingers, <sighs> it's an astonishing sense of a woman who is renouncing the world. But, but, but... My biggest sense I have of Julia Norwich is that she she cares about everybody outside the walls of her enclosure. And she is utterly connected to them in her heart and soul and her words. And her words carry loud and clear through the walls of her enclosure, but across centuries of time as, as well. Uh, I was very struck in this week, you know, I'm here in London and, and preparing for Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. And in the book, I write that Julian Norwich lives on in various ways, but including the inscription of her most famous benediction, as it were, all shall be well, in the window of uh, St. James's Palace, where Queen Elizabeth would go for private prayer. And I, I think that is, yeah, that's a, this is a woman speaking across centuries and speaking from an enclosed space, but her voice comes across loud and clear. So in some ways, I don't really care who she was, yeah. <laughs> whether whether <laughs> whether she was a nun or whether she was a, a merchant's daughter or who, who she was. Right. What she did with words is remarkable. And what we can maybe know just from knowing that she was an anchoress, I mean, she wrote mm. Re Revelations of Divine Love, and this is, I, I've got some dates here, 1343 to 1416, she lived. But w when you were talking about authority earlier, to have authority of uh, the visions of Christ that she saw when she, after she had fallen ill, and those giving her authority for writing. But I also wonder if her circumstances as an anchoress, it, not knowing exactly the details for her, but just knowing what happened mm -hmm. to anchoresses in general, that they were literally walled into their cells and, and servants brought them food and they were usually in a room attached to a church. And I wonder if those circumstances, her devotion and her commitment to the life she was living was so hardcore that even the men in the church admired it and thought that maybe she would be someone in a position to deliver some divine truths based on the extent of the deprivation she was willing to yes. endure. I think you're absolutely onto something there. 
she is living it, isn't she? And mm. and that gives her physically an authority. But I think we also need to factor in, and this is something that I discovered much more about when I was working on uh, women making music in the 16th and 17th centuries. I had naively, stupidly, see convents as places of a complete you know, retreat, utterly cut off from the world, nunneries, what have you. And I discovered this world of vibrant creativity, mm. you know, concerts, compositions, women conducting, still something that wasn't acceptable in the 19th century, in the 16th and 17th century. And I do wonder, we, well, I don't wonder, I, I know that anchorites, anchoresses were available for spiritual guidance. Marjorie Kemp, in fact, travelled to Norwich in order mm. to get that kind of what we might call therapy or counsel from Julia of Norwich. So, yes, she is separate from the world. Yes, she has chosen an extreme form of seclusion. But at the same time, she's vitally connected to her world. And I think one of the things that I love most about Julia of Norwich is, or my research into uh, the anchoress's life, is that they were expected to do labour. They were expected to work and to do a craft or a trade or something to be useful. And in that list of crafts and trades of being useful is writing. Mm. And I love that because, yes, that's what it is. <laughs> wow. And writing, that's really surprising to me at that time period because mm. what kind of writing were they expecting? Writing like the kind that she delivered or did they have something else in mind? I would guess, and, and this has to be a, a guess, in that... I imagine if she'd started writing erotic thrillers, the bishop might not have been well pleased. <laughs> but what she is writing, the kinds of the spiritual guidance that she is offering, right. what is absolutely within the realms of what she should be doing. But what is interesting, again, about Julian is that she is speaking to all of us. She's not just giving a guide for fellow women, fellow enclosed women, hmm. for example. And that is another thing that so many of these women and indeed so many underrepresented groups today in the literary world are frustrated by. As a woman, you're supposed to write about women's matters. As a person of colour, you're supposed to write about race, etc., etc. We're still we've still got that legacy now. Julian's saying, no, I'm writing about and for everybody. And that's where her conception of God as both male and female is so remarkable as well. This is a truly inclusive vision of, of spirituality. Right. I'm reminded of the interview I saw with Toni Morrison on, I think it was the Charlie Rose show here in the States. And he had said, when are you going to get around to writing a novel that's not about race? And ah. she just looked at him and said, when are white men novelists going to get around to writing a novel that is about race? What? <laughs> <laughs> like it's not yeah it's not this condition that needs to be treated by certain people it's it's here mm -hmm. for everyone that to not write about it is taking a position as well i totally agree totally agree and it's something that has quite rightly and i'm ashamed to say belatedly become part of my thinking i think um i've written books in the past that haven't considered my own perspective as it were right so before we get too far down the road of, well, if women wrote about religion, men of the church were okay with it and supported it, Marjorie Kemp gives us kind of a different version of a religious writer who faces a very different kind of response. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Marjorie, goodness. Uh, she. I was thinking about talking, talking about the book and... and 
the experience of writing the book during lockdown. And I was in a very privileged position in that I had all these women as almost friends, sisters living with yeah. me in my head when I wasn't yeah. able to see anybody else. Marjorie is the tricky one. I mean, <laughs> she's, she's utterly crazy. It, it goes without saying she's crazy and she says very crazy things. Yeah. But sometimes there needs to be a crazy person in the room to shock us out of our complacency. Okay, I, I find it harder to to follow her down her slightly dubious theological pathways. She does seem to me obsessed with having sex with Jesus Christ. And to be honest, that's not high on my list of priorities in life. But, you know, <laughs> it's she takes everybody on. She's not frightened or, or the, her, her book recounts her taking on powerful, dangerous men. Yeah. I mean, men who have the power to sign a piece of paper and have you burned. Yeah. And she stands up and she says, my visions are true, I believe, I hope, I pray. My emotion is genuine. This is a woman who cried for days and days at a time. And what's fascinating about the book of Marjorie Kemp is that again and again, she's despised, she's not listened to, she's discredited. But somehow, for every time she's knocked back, she comes into her own again and somebody says, ah, you're right, Marjorie. I see the light now. And these are these are bishops saying, yeah. oh, okay. And so she's very problematic, though. I, I have to, I, I yeah. find her difficult. <laughs> she's such a great example, too, because she was so public and she was so engaged. Often we think of a brave writer as somebody who is essentially living at home in their study, but they're writing brave things and taking on risk, but only after the manuscript is sent out and published. And then at that point, the physical danger maybe comes to her. But she was someone who would be, she was arrested, she was accused of heresy, but it all, it was all face to face. Yes, absolutely. And add in her pilgrimages as well. Yeah. And there's no point in concealing the fact that traveling is in my blood. I love it. And I was drawn to Marjorie in part because the more I found out, you know, these journeys she undertook, quite apart from the spiritual benefit that she would receive from going to Jerusalem or, or Santiago de Compostela or indeed Bridlington, these are arduous journeys. She's doing them mm. into her 60s. And they're not just arduous, they are genuinely dangerous. We take for granted so much of the infrastructure. I mean, I'm not just talking about <laughs> engines and, and mechanical forms of travel. It's not just the, the, the miles she had to walk, but darkness, wolves, bandits, rogue mercenaries, just thieves are at every turn. And also being in a strange country and being completely vulnerable, not speaking the language, not knowing where she can stay, not knowing where she can lay her head. And yet she keeps going. And I secretly, or not so secretly actually, I wonder if that's what drove her as much as the spiritual quest that she was on, the, the power of the visions. I think she was a woman who wanted to go out there and see the world. Mm. And they always say there are two stories in literature. You know, a stranger comes to town or you go and seek your fortune. Yeah. And on the whole, <laughs> women's stories have been the stranger comes to town and he's called Mr. Darcy and you marry him and you get Pemberley. But with Marjorie, she takes the go and seek your fortune narrative and, and absolutely makes it her own. But in the end, she does come home. And one of the most touching lines I find in, in her book is that her friends still loved her one, yeah. when she came home. A, it's a beautiful uh, quietness to it after all the frenetic activity. 
Yeah. The two plots of a stranger comes to town or someone goes on a journey. They're actually the same plot, just told from a different point of view. It would, <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. It would be interesting to hear the point of view of the people in the town that Marjorie Kemp was visiting. I'm guessing that uh, we would have quite a different picture of it, but it is, it's <laughs> fantastic that we have her recounting of it, which is even better. Although I never figured out why in her book, Marjorie is described as the creature. Was that, uh, well, <laughs> do you know why that was? I cannot say exactly why the creature, except as an act of humility, or humility, gesture towards yeah. humility. Just one of God's creations. Just one of God's creations, which kind of balances out, but doesn't, the, the sheer egotism of said creature. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's so many games that book plays. And it's interesting that, that you mentioned, uh, you know, she is referred to always in the third person. We, we very, just once or twice, you get a sense of, of the first person, of Marjorie's voice coming through. And it is one of the mysteries of the book. And you began by asking me, you know, what are the challenges these women face? And one of them is the need to, to hide mm. in some ways. I mean, this runs right through. So Marjorie Kemp, the need to collaborate and the need to hide. So Marjorie Kemp needed men, the men in her world, to write her book. She couldn't do it on her own. And that... And in a sense, her voice doesn't come to us directly because of that she's written about. Similarly, hundreds of years later, Jane Austen is in a very similar position that she is dependent upon the men in her life to do the, the business deals, to liaise with the publishers, to see books through the press. Mm. In the same way, she has to collaborate. She has to conform in, in many ways. And when she does publish, she publishes as a lady. Yeah, And her narr narratorial voice, though it hints at being a first-person voice, it isn't Jane Austen speaking directly to us, is it? So these are wise strategies. Yeah. Hide yourself a bit. <laughs> yeah, her name was never on the title page of her books. And Correct. even after she had the success, they would say, you know, by the author of Sense and Sensibility yes. and, and just by a lady. And it, it was almost like the, uh, the stigma of being a woman writer was so strong that it was just sort of, I guess the the idea was, well, why would any self-respecting woman sully themselves by putting their name on their activity, which we still kind of scorn that this is not something a woman should be doing? Yes. If we're thinking about one of the, the seams that run through the entire book, every woman has to take care in some way that she herself or has to attempt to avoid, I should say, really, being targeted as an individual. And Austin's way of doing that was to, yes, hide behind anonymity. She makes clear it's a lady. Yeah, <laughs> so class, right. and I'm speaking in London, you know, um, class matters over here. And so that's one kind of protection. But I think Austin herself was very troubled by the culture of celebrity that was growing up mm. around her. She wanted mm -hmm. no part of it. And you can kind of see why. Yeah. It's still happening now. If you put yourself on a public stage, whether as a politician or an author or in any, any woman in public life, I'd say in the book is somehow asking for the attacks that will surely come and the kinds of attacks that, that are highly personalized and often highly sexualized as well. And as I said, I, I think Austin didn't want that. But my goodness, she wanted and needed to write and she wanted her books to be published and she wanted to make money from them. But she couldn't be upfront about that. 
Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Anna Beer. Okay, we are back. So, Anna, we've talked about Jane Austen. I don't think we'll have time to talk about all eight, and I do want to leave things for our listeners to discover in your book. Do you want to choose one of the others, or should we keep talking about Jane Austen? Oh, so many to choose from. <laughs> I'd love to talk about Mary Elizabeth Braddon, yeah. the final author in the book. I, I see a, a nice transition from Jane Austen when you said she did want to make money from her books. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Braddon made a lot of money from yeah. her books. <laughs> More than 80 novels. Yes, indeed. Uh, two large houses filled with friends, a stable of horses. And this was a girl who grew up impoverished and having to support herself and her mother after the father, husband, um, didn't quite come up to scratch. <laughs> and it's a wonderful story of a very determined, very... What I love about Mary Braddon is that she's honest about what she does. Mm. I, I really grew very fond of her. There's not an, a moment of pretension. She is writing because she wants to please and entertain her readers. And she is so intelligent. But sometimes, and I, I feel very strongly about this because I love genre fiction. I love detective fiction. I love pulp fiction. Sometimes would we call Raymond Chandler less of a novelist because he was paid whatever it was, a, a cent of a word for black mask stories. And I think that that's the world she's coming from, pulp mm. fiction. She's churning it yeah, out. Right. And while she's doing that, she creates not every work is a masterpiece. And I have to say, I've not read every work, but she strikes gold. And as she says, I do what's in me honestly. Mm. I love that about her. Yeah. Well, once women were able to get, and girls, I guess I should say, were able to get access to education, they quickly became great readers. And to this day, one of the troubling things when you look at websites that keep track of the number of men who review books and the number of books by men that get reviewed as opposed to books written by women is that it really doesn't line up with the fact that more women, you know, there's a greater percentage of readers are women than men. And what I love about the example of Mary Elizabeth Braddon is that it's where we see the marketplace is kind of speaking and saying, people are buying these books and they're reading these books. And so you kind of can't ignore that. You can't kind of takes us away from this idea of, well, maybe there were a handful of geniuses like Jane Austen who were lucky to have a supportive family. And we probably lost a lot of good books that could have been written by women who didn't have that kind of support of their spouse or their family members or someone else who was able to promote them. But this was somebody who was just kind of saying, look, people are going to buy this. I can write this supernatural fiction and fiction with these wild plots and it's going to be popular and the rest of you are just going to have to deal with it because someone is going to let me make money out of this. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And don't forget that she's also translating Flaubert. You know, she mm. does a, an English mm -hmm. version of Madame Bovary. This is a woman who is very aware of her reader. 
she critiques the work of, of other novelists saying, you know, why, why aren't they giving strong female protagonists? My readers want that. What she also picks up on brilliantly is the, well, she is a lightning rod for fears about women's reading. You say women read read more. I mean, this is a huge, huge cultural debate that's still going on now, as you say. But there's an, a huge anxiety about women reading novels. Mm. I think I quote in the book something about yeah. you know John Ruskin saying, "Don't don't let your daughter read novels." Um, and they'll there are get, lots of uh, they'll get ideas. They'll get ideas. Uh, they they might be uh, you know erotically aroused. They they will drift off into a world of imagination. They'll become frivolous. The list was endless of why girls, particularly girls and young women, should not read novels. Mm. And what's intriguing about that is that. Well, there's so many things I could say about that. One of the things that I I am occasionally asked by people who say, but, you know, we've got Jane Austen. Uh, And I said, why bother writing a book about women writers? You know, aren't aren't they absolutely mainstream? And I said, well, yes, in many ways they are. But at exactly the moment that Jane Austen becomes a novelist, exactly at the tipping point at which more women start uh, being published as novelists, the novel itself is degraded Mm. from a uh, it's starting to be seen as trash, as pulp or whatever we want to call it. And you just see this. Every time women actually get a foothold in any arena, then that arena is pushed off the pedestal, as it were. So I have slightly wandered away from the, the point, <laughs> the very valid point that you were making. But what Braddon understands this world yeah. is the world of, that Charles Dickens understood brilliantly as well, but in a much more egotistical and actually, to me, I think Braddon is the better writer, which is shocking to say. But I think Dickens is truly great. But Braddon, for I would say the same thing in some ways about Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe's plays are indestructible. Give them to a, an average theatre company and you'll still get a good night out in the theatre. Give one of Shakespeare's lesser plays to an average theatre company and you're going to have a worthy but not great night out in the theatre. And I think the same is true of some of Dickens's books. We prize them too highly because of the works of genius that he has written. Whereas Braddon just did not know how to do a dud plot. I mean, she, she just she was so consistently good. <laughs> now, had she turned herself into a brand in the way that Jane Austen might have resisted? Yes, absolutely. Though with a lot of ambivalence. She was an actress before she was a novelist, and she had a different name then, and then she returned to her birth surname, but originally published as M.E. Braddon. She did a mm. George Eliot or a J.K. Rowling even, mm-hmm. and she wished she wanted to remain anonymous. Now, there was very, very good reason for that, and I won't give away the, the shocking truth of her domestic arrangements, because I want everybody to read about it. But there was a good reason for her to hide behind M.E. Braddon. And there was good reason for her to fear the backlash when people found out that she was Mary Elizabeth. But she endured, and it takes a lot of courage. There's one letter in which she hints that she is truly hurt by the things that people are throwing at her. I mean, goodness knows what it'd be like now on Twitter. But imagine that kind of, those kind of attacks happening in every newspaper, in every letter, in every environment you go into. And she was the, the heart of that. And she was a very easy target. So publishing as Emmy Braddon protected her for a bit, but not for long. Then again, she had about four or five other pseudonyms mm. as well. <laughs> uh, you had some exposure to this or some, uh, not just exposure, but some in-depth feel or understanding from it, I think from your 
your previous work in the world of classical music. And so you came into this probably with a lot of expectations for what you might find. Was that pretty much what you found or did anything surprise you? I think to be honest, I was I was more surprised than I expected to be. Mm-hmm. Some of the patterns we've talked about are there in the classical music industry and they're there in the literary industry. But in fact, because all the writers that I write about in Eve Bites Back are now available in published volumes, I think I underestimated how hidden, how necessarily hidden or how almost lost mm. a lot of this work might have been. And that includes Jane Austen, 20 years in the making was the, the publication of Sense of Sensibility. If there hadn't been, you know, the perfect storm of events in 1810, 1811, we wouldn't have Jane Austen's work. We only have a few copies of Emilia Lanya's volume, Salve Deus. Whereas with the female composers, there's always this sense that somewhere in some drawer somewhere, there was this bundle of manuscripts hmm. and they were all very well known in their own time. And then we, we lost the work, and, and then in the 20th century, 21st century, their lives and works have been recovered. With the writers, I, I think I just became almost humbled by the fact of how much we could have missed, how much, and the breadth we've lost as well. Something like Afro Ben. Yes, most of us in the literary or interest in theatre will know about The Rover, might know about a couple of other plays, might know about a couple of poems, but she wrote so much more than that. Lady Mary Wortley Montague also. So I think that was the biggest surprise, how much was there and how much we've nearly lost. Right. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Okay. (laughs) Are you ready? I am ready. On a crisp fall afternoon, you are taking a leisurely walk in the woods when suddenly you stop short and gasp. Ahead of you on the path is a ferocious animal, a wolf, in fact, with flashing eyes and sharp teeth. Who's afraid of me? It snarls. I am, you confess. (laughs) Oh, sorry, it says, as it transforms into the shape of a middle-aged woman with a modest but tasteful outfit and a fetching hat. It's me, Virginia Wolf. Still afraid? (laughs) Not in the least, you reply, although I do wonder if I'm dreaming. It doesn't matter, Virginia says, because I'm about to offer you a kind of dream. You've done such a good job with your book, I'm going to reward you. I'm friends with these eight women... And I can arrange a meeting, but you need to choose one of two scenarios. I can either bring one of them to your house for an afternoon and the two of you can chat while I serve tea, or I can host all eight of them at a garden party. You won't be allowed to talk to any of them, but you're free to sit and listen to their conversations with one another. Which do you choose? Oh, my goodness. By the way, I am very afraid of Virginia Woolf. But <laughs> that, 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 so the answer to that is all decision. of us. Who's afraid of Virginia I, Woolf? We all are. <laughs> I think I would listen. Mm. I I would observe. Yes, it makes me a little sad to say that, but uh, I think the riches, the 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 gems, the arguments. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that I would hear would, yeah, fill a fill hundred future books. Yeah. yeah. Would you want to take a crack at putting the uh, name cards on the table and placing people in uh, contact <laughs> with one another? Or would you just let them You've mingle around? <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful idea. And uh, I, I shall feed it into the TV people's discussion this afternoon. I think we need to get these eight women in a room together. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Oh. Just imagine. Oh, I I can't. uh, Do you think one would dominate just through personality? It seems. uh, I think uh, there are there are 
the ones who would try to. Yeah. And I can, it's very interesting. I find it quite easy to see the physical maneuvers of these individual women. What is very hard to grasp is what would be their common language? Because in some ways, and I may be unfair to my sex, one of the things that women put in a room together, and of course, we're all going to talk about, I don't know, latest diets, lousy partners, and the truth is that that very rarely happens. But Mm. one of the points about that I'm trying to make in the book is that these are eight women who do not write about women's issues. Mm. They write very strong female characters. They will explore challenges, predicaments, experiences that impact women's lives. But they are truly writing for all humans and therefore put them in a room together. What would be the, the common the common thing? And you know what it is? I've finally got there. It's going to be writing. They mm. all love writing. Yeah. I, you just get that sense. They have to write. They want to write. They will write through thick and thin. And, and that is just, I'm getting goosebumps even saying that. I can imagine each and every one of them, the trauma for them, and this is true from Puritanical Anne Bradstreet through to crazy Marjorie Kemp through to Jane Austen. Don't take my pen and paper away from me. (laughs) Yeah. You get the sense that even though they might not have that much in common or their belief systems might be different, they would have each other's back when it comes to the right to write, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. No, that's beautifully, beautifully said. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Okay, well, the book is called Eve Bites Back, An Alternative History of English Literature. Anna Beer, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, there we go. That's Anna Beer. My thanks to her for joining me today. Eve Bites Back is the book. The title is a good one. If you don't look too hard at it, Eve (laughs) Eve Bites Back. Did anyone bite Eve? Eve bit the apple, and then did somebody bite her? Metaphorically, I guess. She was unjustly accused for all these years, blamed for something that was not really her fault. Biting back. I guess she's biting back against that. Okay, moving on. We have some good episodes coming up, people, so please do subscribe, etc. We're steaming toward 2 million downloads this calendar year. It looks like we might fall a little bit short, which is okay. It was an ambitious goal. You may recall at the outset of this whole thing, I wondered if we would get to a, a million downloads total ever in 20 years. And now we cross that little bridge every few months, thanks to all of you literature lovers. I am in your debt. Who do we have coming up? Rabindranath Tagore. We'll have an episode on him. Mike Palindrome will be here again. I know, people, you miss Mike. Well, he's a busy guy, but he's going to swing by and talk some Jane Austen. It will be worth the wait. Kurt Vonnegut is coming up soon. There's a new book about him and his role in the environmentalist movement. That is quite good. We will talk to the author of that book. And Laurie Frankel will be here for our old tradition, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Soup and Shakespeare expert Laurie Frankel, well, novelist Laurie Frankel, I guess I should say, here to help us launch a new project. It's all top secret, but all shall be revealed. It involves lots of past guests. I've been asking them a special question, and we're going to start rolling out their answers, including Anna Beer's answer. So if you're a fan of hers, if you enjoyed this talk, please join us for that one. That's coming up a week from Thursday, or a week from Wednesday. Everyone, please join us for everything. 
How about that? There's lots of seats at the table and warmth and good company. I'm Jack Wilson, planning my Thanksgiving feast. If you couldn't tell, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.